Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Shirley Tillman. I'm the president of Princeton University. And it's my pleasure to be with all of you this afternoon uh, to welcome you back uh, to the uh, last afternoon of the first annual Princeton Colloquium on Public and International Affairs. Over the past two days, you have come together to discuss a topic of critical relevance to our global community, the role of morality in foreign affairs. There could not be a more timely topic for this gathering. As the United States and the international community seek to rebuild Iraq, the importance of our understanding our relationship between morality and foreign policy cannot be overstated. Your discussions have helped illuminate this important question from historical, political, philosophical, economic, and religious perspectives. Here, Princeton and the Woodrow Wilson School are playing a critical role in bringing together a variety of different perspectives on a topic of great public importance. I'm delighted that so many university programs, centers, and departments have contributed to this event. Their joint participation enhances the richness of our academic community and shows what can be accomplished when we share ideas and unite in common inquiry. I particularly want to thank the many of you who have come to share your knowledge and insight with us from other universities, from the government, the media, policy institutes, and NGOs. This colloquium has important implications for Princeton as well, as it showcases our new dean's vision of the Woodrow Wilson School as Princeton's nexus to the world of public and international affairs. The Wilson School will continue to be the forum through which Princeton can inform public policy and influence important global questions. This colloquium is doing just that, reaching out to national and global constituencies and influencing the way we all understand key issues. I'm particularly pleased to welcome back school alumni from what we fondly call the classes of the threes and the eights, and particularly to the class of 1953, the fourth MPA class in the history of the Wilson School, who is celebrating their 50th reunion. You are all part of a very special community, and we are enormously proud of you. I'm also pleased to welcome McNair Lair's By the People production to Princeton, and particularly those of you in the audience who come to Princeton from across New Jersey to explore this topic with us. Your questions and conclusions from this experience will be shared with a far larger audience when a special By the People broadcast airs next month. This afternoon, our keynote speaker is someone who perfectly fits the Wilson School tradition of cross-disciplinary thinking and policy impact. The Reverend J. Brian Hare's rich academic work and his commitment to public service 
are remarkable. He is president of Catholic Charities USA and also serves as distinguished professor of ethics and international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Father Hare's academic and policy work over the last 30 years has focused upon the role of religion in world politics and in American society and the role of ethics in international politics and in U.S. foreign politics. Prior to assuming his position at Catholic Charities, Father Hare served for eight years at Harvard University, a small college to the north of here. <laughs> From 1998 to 2001, he was the interim dean, then dean of the Harvard Divinity School the first Catholic to hold this position. He joined the Divinity School faculty in 1993 as professor of the practice in religion and society. He was a faculty associate at Harvard's Weatherhead Center of International Affairs, an affiliated faculty member of the Kennedy School of Government, a faculty associate of ethics and the professions program, and a member of the Faculty Advisory Committee to the Institute of Politics. I think Harvard got its money's worth. <laughs> From 1973 to 1992, Father Hare was assigned to the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops in Washington, where he held positions as Director of the Office of International Affairs, Secretary of the Department of Social Development and World Peace, and Counselor for Social Policy. From 84 to 92, he also served on the faculty of Georgetown University, holding teaching positions as the Joseph P. Kennedy Professor of Christian Ethics in the Kennedy Center for Ethics, and as Research Professor of Ethics and International Politics in the School of Foreign Service. Father Hare was a MacArthur Foundation Fellow and has received more than 25 honorary degrees from American colleges and universities. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, the Council on Foreign Relations, and serves on the board of the Arms Control Association, the Center for Global Development, and the Independent Sector. Father Hare has a mind rich in ideas and eloquent in expression. I can think of no one better qualified to address the role and use of moral principles in a changing political context. We are honored to welcome him back to Princeton, and I look forward to his remarks. Father Hare. President Tillman, thank you very, very much for an overly gracious introduction. Uh, it is enough for me to simply say that it's a joy to come back to Princeton, where I have many friends and even more intellectual depths of the number of books I have read by Princeton faculty that have enriched my life. It is a particular privilege to say yes to an old and very respected friend, your new dean of the Woodrow Wilson Center, uh, it was a major uh, act of 
brigand and larceny to steal her from Harvard, but <laughs> I only say that because I have some abiding loyalties to the small college north of here. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I am grateful to come and participate in just the kind of innovative event that Anne-Marie Slaughter uh, turns out not simply yearly, but monthly and weekly. So it is no small privilege for me to be part of this symposium. Uh, Anne-Marie asked me to talk on the question of moral principles and world politics, a modest topic to be sure. And I do it uh, with both appreciation for the topic, but with some apprehension of doing it at Princeton, a double apprehension. First, the place and the topic. Names from Princeton resound through the corridors of this question. Paul Ramsey from the Department of Religion, perhaps the most published ethicist on war and politics in the 20th century. George Kennan's contributions from Princeton uh, over the years to this topic, multiple and different contributions. Michael Walzer, to whom we are all in debt, all of us who try to deal with this topic. And Michael Doyle and Richard Ullman and Paul Sigmund, the names simply go on. This is an intimidating assignment. Secondly, there is the topic and the program. When Anne-Marie asked me to speak on this over the phone in a rush, I thought for sure that it would be like all those other conferences I had gone to over the last 25 years, where there are 30 panels and one of them is on ethics and international relations. So you can say almost anything you want because no one will contest you. But I then looked at the program and then found out that every panel was on ethics, morality, religion, and international affairs. And a talk like the one I have been asked to give inevitably will trespass on these other panels and will be brought under scrutiny from what has already been said and what will be said. Nevertheless, I must proceed. The title of Moral Principles in the Midst of Political Change is really shorthand for my topic. It is shorthand for the topic of ethics and foreign policy, morality and foreign policy. Principles do not exhaust moral reasoning. Indeed, when one tries to ask what the resources are that we can draw upon to think about normative questions in world politics, I think it is possible to distinguish three sources of resource. First, there is the language of the law the language of legal versus illegal actions, the language of Anne-Marie Slaughter's discipline of international law. Secondly, there is what I might call the language of the academy on this topic, the language of moral philosophy, which tends to speak in terms of right and wrong, as distinct from legal and illegal, but not separate from legal and illegal. Thirdly, there is what might be called the language of the sanctuary, where the discussion is often about good and evil, and where the discourse is theological and religious. Now, of course, these three sources for addressing normative questions in world politics are not self-contained, isolated containers of ideas. The legal and the moral constantly relate in the arena of jurisprudence. The moral and the religious are in constant dialogue, for religious traditions have been a part, not the only part, but a major part of the traditions from which we draw moral ideas. So there is a way in which this normative discussion 
is as rich and as deep as the multiple panels of this program indicate. Moreover, this topic is an old topic, but now with a new edge. We should not think that we are the first to try this, the discussion of the moral dimensions of world politics, but we need to acknowledge that there is something new about the effort. One of the standard journals we all read in this field, of course, is Foreign Affairs, and the most recent opening editorial in Foreign Affairs by one of your speakers, Les Gelb, said nothing less than the following. I quote him, something quite important has happened in American foreign policymaking with little notice or digestion of its meaning. Moral matters are now part of American politics and the politics of many other nations. They are rarely, even in this new age, the driving forces behind foreign policy, but they are now a constant force that cannot be overlooked when it comes to policy effectiveness abroad or political support at home. A new edge in that sense. My attempt to summarize and discuss this old topic with a new edge and with multiple resources will devolve into three questions. One, how did we get here? How did we get to the point of the foreign affairs editorial or this conference? Secondly, where are we now after the experience of terror and war and the complexity that falls out from that? Where are we on this topic right now? Thirdly, whence may we go on this topic as a country and as an international system? How did we get here? Well, to put the Gelb essay in context, one needs to say that this is an evolutionary story. While Les talks about something quite new, it is new in its intensity, perhaps new in its complexity, but in fact, there is a story that stands behind how we got here. It is not something all of a sudden, and we are not beginning from scratch as we try to think about norms foreign policy, and world politics. To be concise or brief about the story, it begins, in the United States at least, I think, with what might be called the realist triumph of the post-World War II period. The realist triumph was the way in which, after World War II, uh, the rise in American political science uh, of the explicit discipline of international relations shaped powerfully by those who held a realist vision, brought to that vision a deep suspicion of moral norms in foreign policy. We all know the story. Realists were concerned that the introduction of normative discourse would distort good policymaking, effective policymaking. Or realists were concerned that the introduction of normative language, ideas, and goals into foreign policy would produce the familiar problem of good intentions and bad consequences, for normative goals were broad, sometimes vague, and could promote the very kind of crusades that world politics could not sustain. Now, there was always more complexity to the realist story than was, is sometimes admitted. For major protagonists, like Hans Morgenthau, 
or George Kennan, and preeminently Reinhold Niebuhr, after they had warned about the moral dimensions of analysis of foreign policy, happily went about their work of trying to combine moral restraint and political analysis. But there was an image of the realist triumph that in fact said you should keep these two worlds entirely separate. That image was expressed sometimes gently, sometimes rather ferociously, as in Dean Acheson's experience. Acheson, after he sat on the XCOM during the Cuban Missile Crisis and was frustrated in his proposal that we should bomb Cuba because Robert Kennedy introduced what he thought were moral restraints that ought to be observed, you may remember Acheson left the XCOM. And about a month after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Acheson went to the University of Massachusetts to give a lecture on morality and foreign policy. And he opened the lecture this way. He said there are two kinds of problems in life, moral problems and real problems. And then he launched into his discussion of morality and foreign policy. The consequence of the realist triumph was that for about a generation, there was little attention given in the central policy debate, I think, to a conscious, disciplined discussion of moral norms. They were cultivated in other settings. That was when Paul Ramsey was cultivating them here at Princeton. But they were often not introduced into the center of the policy process. The next part of the story is the role of Vietnam. Vietnam, I think, was a catalyst to the introduction of moral norms into the center of the policy process. Once again, we are indebted to Michael Walzer in the introduction to Just Wars, where he made the point that his political opposition to the war sent him in search of moral opposition. And he came upon a tradition already prepared to which he promised he would make a contribution, having used it effectively during Vietnam. That contribution is there for all to see, and you will see it again this afternoon. But I think the Vietnam debate, by its very intensity, meant that it was a catalyst to joining normative concerns and foreign policy, but it was hard to make the kind of reflective contribution in the midst of that debate to the larger question of foreign policy and world politics. The catalyst, however, set afoot a recognition that there were a series of questions in world politics that required more than what I might call empirical analysis, more than analysis that arises from the disciplines of politics and economics and particularly military strategy. Embedded in these questions, there were always moral concerns. The question was not whether to introduce morality into foreign policy making. The nature of foreign policy making as a human enterprise by people who are always human beings and representing other human beings means that it is simply a question of whether you address the moral factor explicitly and in a disciplined and systematic way or whether, in a sense, you subordinate the moral factor and it works in its own way without examination. The catalyst of Vietnam, I think, means that it opened the way for three moments of change that bring us to the present moment. 
The first was the rise of the human rights movement in the 1970s, something which Dean Slaughter is intimately associated with. The 1970s are the dates for the emergence of an extensive analysis of human rights and foreign policy, but of course the roots of this lie in the founding of the United Nations. While one could always make a moral argument that there were responsibilities as part of the human community by individuals and states to respond to human rights violations, until the founding of the UN, the UN Declaration on Human Rights and the language of the Charter, it was hard to make a political and legal argument that there were moral responsibilities that states needed to fulfill regarding human rights violations within other countries. So in a sense, the human rights documents lay like an intellectual time bomb just below the surface of the human rights system, brought to the surface precisely in the 1970s by a complex set of circumstances, people, and ideas. Without entering the story in detail, let me simply make the proposition that since the 1970s, there has emerged an intellectual, organizational, and political and legal movement surrounding the concept of human rights, which has made an enormous difference in the policy of states and the polity of world politics. Secondly, the contribution of the 1980s to where we have come from was the nuclear debate. Once again, the nuclear age by that time was 40 years old, but it was, in a sense, the revival of the intensity of the Cold War in the early 80s and rapid technological developments in weaponry, which gave, once again, a new edge to an older question. The dense debate about nuclear strategy that was part of the nuclear age, and particularly the 1980s, is not something to be reviewed here. But one could at least acknowledge how, in a sense, a question we had lived with for 40 years took on, again, a new edge. If there is any ethic of war, it is an ethic that says that the only morally legitimate use of force must be a limited use of force. Behind that proposition lies the pedigree of two very different individuals. For I submit it was two different individuals that taught the Western world to talk about and think about politi uh, politics, strategy, and ethics. This odd pair was a 19th century Prussian general and a 5th century African saint. The Prussian general, of course, Clausewitz, who said that war was the extension of politics by other means, that war did not mean one left the rational universe, but that, in fact, war could be contained and justified on reasonable grounds. The 5th century African saint was Augustine, who argued that war could not only be morally, uh, war could not only be rationally justified, it could be morally justified. But the architecture created by Clausewitz and Augustine meant that war must be limited, and the phenomenon of the nuclear age was precisely the threat of a use of force that intrinsically was unlimited. While the specific debates are not our concern here, one of the things that happened in the midst of this debate 
was to drive back to the surface of public discussion a fundamental principle of the moral order in the most conflicted area of world politics. It is the principle of the protection of civilians, non-combinant immunity, or as Ramsey always called it, the principle of discrimination. I use this idea because it illustrates a kind of anecdotal story of how this joining of the normative and the empirical order over time makes a difference. The history of this anecdote extends from the middle of World War II to this present year and our present existence coming out of yet one more war. In the middle of World War II, a little-known article by an American Jesuit named John Ford called The Morality of Obliteration Bombing took on the existing Allied policy of civilian bombing and argued that while World War II was justified by its objectives, it was not justified in the way it was being pursued. That article has enough significance, for me at least, that I continue to assign it today, over 50 years later. But in terms of the impact of the article, let us consult another source. McGeorge Bundy's Political History of the Nuclear Age gives a detailed account of the decision to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in the midst of his chapter, Bundy said, makes the point that in the final debate leading up to that decision, as he put it, no one, no one in the upper reaches of the American government ever raised the question about bombing civilians. And the reason, Bundy said, was that that question had already been settled. It is a remarkable example of how when you bury a moral principle, there is a way in carrying on a debate about the world as if you were looking at it with one eye. What is even more remarkable is the journey from the middle 1940s until today. Partly because of the attention of the nuclear debate about targeting doctrine, about the nature of deterrence, about the question of intentionality and its moral significance, the ancient principle of non-combinant immunity took on a new edge, a new weight, and a new importance. And the story that has evolved from the 80s is an ever-increasing attention, I submit, in the general public, in the professional military, and in the media on this question of the protection of civilians in war. The principle is enormously complicated, for it does not say that if civilians are killed, the war is unjust. It does say if civilians are targeted, purposely threatened, or disregarded in the planning of the war, the war is morally deficient, and perhaps unjust if sufficiently morally deficient. We are still in the midst of an ongoing story on this question, but it is a story with a learning curve that illustrates change within the political and strategic order. It is not the place to explain it in further detail, but the record is clear and can be followed. The problems are not solved. We have shifted from a discussion of strategy to tactics. 
The strategy of World War II, purposely bombing civilian centers, is no longer followed or defended. The debate about tactics, the use of cluster bombs near civilian areas, the discussion of the bombing of dual-use targets in Gulf War I, and to some degree the reservations about bombing some of those targets in Gulf War II is part of this ongoing argument. Again, I can only use it as an example of where we have come from. Third, the third chapter in this evolution of moral norms and foreign policy is the decade of the 1990s, where the debate shifts remarkably in substance and tone. Those of us who have worked on the problem of ethics and war for the Cold War found ourselves with a different problem before us. For almost 50 years, the central problem for both strategists and moralists was how one avoided catastrophic violence, literally catastrophic violence. Human beings held in their hands a capacity to do destructive damage in a way that other generations could not have imagined. And the destruction would take a matter of moments rather than the long drawn out human meaning of destruction we had come to know in World War I and World War II. How avoid catastrophic violence? That was the problem at the heart of deterrence. With the collapse of the Cold War, weapons of mass destruction did not go away. We will come back to that. But what did change was the central policy agenda. The dominant topics of the 1990s were not about Moscow and Washington or Berlin and Paris. The dominant discussions were about Somalia, Rwanda, Kosovo, Bosnia, Liberia, Sierra Leone, places which never reached the front pages of the 50 years of the Cold War or were on the radar screen of any policy planner. The problem was not how did one prevent catastrophic violence. The problem was what moral obligation existed to stop creeping chaos. The problem was not the classical great power problem of states locked in mortal combat, either actual or threatened. The problem was what about states that lived on the periphery of world politics where massive human suffering and violence was occurring and where there were no, quotes, interests to drive one to do anything. That problem received a great deal of attention. It also resulted in horrendous mistakes. A generation perhaps represented more adequately in this room than by my undergraduates at either Harvard or Georgetown a generation that had come out of World War II and therefore always understood the meaning of a phrase, never again, knew exactly what it meant, knew exactly what lessons were taught by it, and were committed to see it be realized, never again. That generation and others came to know the phenomenon of genocide. Before our eyes, visible, tangible, and never mentioned in the policy process, we are told, by books as recent as this year.
The debate of the 90s about humanitarian military intervention joined two sources of the normative repertoire that I mentioned. It was distinctly a debate about the relationship of the moral and the legal and the consequence of that debate for the political. For the problem of humanitarian military intervention had to confront the problem that the legal order argued that intervention was clearly a threat to international order and was justified in only the most extreme cases, like genocide. While the genocide problem was the most extreme example of the 1990s, most cases did not rise to the level of genocide. And so I submit the humanitarian intervention debate of the 90s was a classical case of international jurisprudence. The moral arguments were interventionist. The legal arguments were restrictive about intervention. And the political decision-making was left strung out between the failure to join the moral and legal in coherent fashion. Indeed, the final point to be made is that by the end of the 1990s, we had not settled the debate. Kosovo, if anything, brought it to a new intensity, as some international lawyers found it illegal to take action, while others in the moral order argued it was imperative to learn from the lessons of Rwanda and other places and that action was demanded. But we finished the 1990s without final resolution, coherent moral, legal, and political consensus. This is my overly long story of where we've come from, from the realist triumph to a position at the end of the 1990s where the moral argument cuts across not only the issues I've talked about, but in fact four major areas of world politics. A full articulation of ethics and world politics must consider the ethics of war and peace, the ethics of human rights, the ethics of international political economy, and finally the ethics of world order. Each of these has a kind of developed architecture, but the challenge of the new period, I submit, is that the developed architecture of these four distinct problems now must be related in a kind of transverse method of analysis that brings these principles from different places and forces them into both confrontation and hopefully collaboration. Indeed, the Iraq case illustrates the way in which multiple normative problems are compressed in a single issue. The Iraq case involved weapons of mass destruction, to some degree a throwback of ethics and nuclear questions. Secondly, claims about human rights and intervention. Thirdly, arguments about the world order question of who should authorize intervention. And finally, questions about legitimate moral authority to take action in a divided world of legal and political discussion. So that brings us to the question, where are we today? Where are we on the question of moral principles and world politics? The narrative I have given, while more lengthy than perhaps it should have been, only glancingly engages 
the empirical policy debate, the empirical question, political, strategic, and legal of where we are. And yet, good analysis of morality and foreign policy should follow the guideline, I think, of John Courtney Murray, who wrote in the late 50s that analysis of foreign policy meant that the questio facti preceded the questio juris, that the question of what the nature of the problem was had to be understood from the inside out in order to do good moral analysis. The question then is, what is the questio facti of the present moment? Where are we? Not in normative terms first, but the nature of the political order. In a recent article in National Interest, Philip Zelikow from the University of Virginia, who both acknowledges in the article and is acknowledged by others to be a contributor to the most recent national security statement of the United States, to which I will return, Zelikow opens his analysis this way. He says, perhaps the key question of international politics and U.S. national security policy today is whether a genuinely new era has dawned since the end of the Cold War. In response to his question, he moves immediately to the events of 9-11 to say that this crystallizes the conviction that, in fact, we have a new era. I think the analysis must move in two steps. There have been two stages of evolution of the questio facti that bring us to the present term. Their first are the changes of the last decade and now the changes of this decade. The changes of the last decade resulted from the collapse of the Cold War order and the entrance into what we call, somewhat clumsily, the post-Cold War world. The essence of the problem, I think, that we faced in the 1990s was that the collapse of the Cold War brought about a double transformation of world politics, a change in the structure of power, and simultaneously a change in the principles of order of world politics. The structure of power is the classical realist question. Who rules? Who defines the order? Who are the major states? And what is their relationship among them? The collapse of a bipolar world 50 years in lineage raised the question then of what took its place. And we had multiple contenders with many authors. Unipolarity, multipolarity, multidimensional international system, Again, a debate that never found resolution. Perhaps the more complex debate was the change in the principles of order, which had a longer lineage than simply the Cold War. By the principles of order, I mean those basic ideas that often are referred to as the Westphalian legacy in world politics, arising out of the 17th century, crystallized over four centuries, and to some degree embodied in the United Nations. The Westphalian legacy, I think, is composed of three factors. First of all, the primacy of the sovereign state as the principal actor in world politics. Secondly, the principle of non-intervention as the governing norm between states. And thirdly, this often doesn't get as much publicity, I think. Thirdly, a proposition that religion ought to be separate from politics because prior to the Westphalian order, the religious wars of Europe 
had consumed one-third of the population of Central Europe. Now, in a process that dated back at least to the 1950s, all three of these principles of order, sovereignty, non-intervention, and to some degree the separation of religion and politics, all had been eroded by the time we got to the 1990s, but never exhausted. States were still, and are still, the dominant actors in world politics. But as Bob Cohane and others have taught us, formal sovereignty does not translate into operational sovereignty. Sovereignty exists. Indeed, it is held by more numerous states than ever before in history, but it does not produce the classical results that sovereignty used to produce in terms of self-control of one's own destiny. Non-intervention was not eroded as quickly as sovereignty, but the challenges of the 1990s raised arguments that it should be eroded in its significance. And finally, in terms of religion and politics, however much it might seem wise to create an absolute chasm between the two, the problem was that by the last quarter of the 20th century, it was virtually impossible to do good briefings on foreign policy if one had no understanding of the nature of religion as a public force. How did one understand Latin America and Central America without the Catholic Church? Or how did one understand peaceful transition in South Africa without Bishop Tutu? And why were the problems of Jerusalem never simply reducible to city planning? These were the kinds of questions that drove the religious factor to the surface of the public debate. Well, that dynamic of the 90s, the change in the structure of power and the change in the principles of order, was a very large problem to handle in foreign policy. We were only into the midst of trying to get our hands around it when, of course, the problem of this decade arose, namely terrorism. Once again, one can only encapsulate what the questio facti was that emerged from the attacks on New York. The three dominant characteristics we had to incorporate now, I think, into our view of international politics were the following. Terrorism was transnational. We saw that a group of private individuals could wreak damage halfway around the world that we thought only states could produce. Secondly, this transnational terrorism was also transcendent terrorism. It was driven, in many ways, by a mix of religious and political arguments, precisely what Westphalia feared. Thirdly, it also was traditional terrorism. It willingly struck at civilians. And so we were confronted now with changing principles of order, changed structure of power, and finally, this phenomenon of transnational terrorism. Where are we in trying to respond? The document that tries to do this most fulsomely from the perspective of the United States is the recent national security statement which has already been discussed in this symposium. So I hope I am not redundant. I simply want to use it as a reference point for a couple of reasons. First of all, its objective is to try to define present American strategy. And while our debate has been focused on Iraq, 
this document has much larger and broader goals and implications. Secondly, the scope of this document is to some degree to try to settle the debates of the 90s about what the structure of power is and what the U.S. role in the world ought to be. Thirdly, the document has had a catalytic effect generating commentary across the political spectrum. The character of the document that is interesting for this symposium is that it is explicitly an attempt to blend normative and empirical analysis. Once again, Professor Zelico uh, makes explicit that one of its goals is how you define the role of moral principles in world politics. I find its explicit attempt to do that a much better way than subordinating moral values, once again, as some of the realist argument would do, and simply not attending to them. But one can appreciate the objective of the national security statement in its mix of normative and empirical data, and yet not be convinced by its final product. I submit it is the beginning of a debate, not the end of it, and both its empirical and normative dimensions must be engaged. The empirical premise of the document is a decisive choice of what the structure of world politics is and ought to be, and that is a unipolar world. It begins with an assertion of the vast gulf between American power and all other states in the world. That description has always drawn some critique, and I think still should, but it has about it a certain compelling quality, particularly if you are talking only about military power. The document then becomes more complicated as it draws a moral and legal corollary from this empirical analysis. That moral and legal corollary says that the unique power the United States possesses gives it then, or yields to it, unique duties in international politics. Now, the fact that there are duties that flow from power is uncontestable. But the question of who specifies the duties, what limits exist upon them, and by what methods they are to be fulfilled, seem to be not to be precisely in the ownership of the one country who has defined itself as the center of the world. The conclusions that flow from this document are precisely what makes me think it needs to be the beginning of a debate. From a unipolar view of the world, the document affirms a unilateralist privilege to take action when and where we think necessary if we can't get multilateral help. Secondly, it argues that the power we have can and should be used preemptively if necessary, and part of that argument is that deterrence on which we have depended for 50 years no longer functions. Finally, the argument is that the responsibilities that come with the unique power means that there is again a kind of privileged status for UN, U.S. decisions to intervene in other nations. I find these conclusions troubling in the extreme. I am willing to say it should be the beginning of a debate. I certainly am not prepared to conclude it ought to be the end of a debate. And the doubts and disagreements flow from both the empirical analysis and the way it is joined normatively. That is not to say there is nothing that is positive in the document. That would not be my intent. But it is necessary to distinguish elements. 
Let me give you some sense of how I think the implications for American foreign policy that flow from this need to be debated. First of all, the status and role of sovereignty. This is a classic question for both law and morality, for empirical analysis of world politics and normative analysis. Usually, the moral analysis of sovereignty lays stress on setting limits on sovereign claims, for sovereign claims traditionally have been expansive in their nature. This proposal of this document redefines sovereignty in this sense. Again, Professor Zellico argues that an underlying theme of the document is that it redefines the geography of national security from territorial boundaries being the significant uh, guideline to what constitutes a security threat, to what he calls transnationality, that fault lines within society are the sources of danger. Now, there's no question that the rise of transnationality in multiple ways, from economics through transnational actors to terrorists, is a major characteristic of world politics. But if transnationality is to be the norm that is to set the guideline for when force should be used, I think it opens the possibility of a significant tilt in the direction of the use of force in the international system. Transnationality brings the prospect and possibility of reform, but transnationality in the security area, I think, needs to be tested tightly before it is accepted. So. My point is, what is the status of the state and its sovereign role in this document? John Eikenberry from Georgetown argues that it maximizes the sovereignty of the United States and makes conditional the sovereignty of all other actors. That seems to me to be problematical in the extreme. Second problem is the way force is now related to human rights and nonproliferation. Clearly, the ethic of war uh, in, an, in the international system holds embedded in it truths that need to be attended to, that at times force is necessary to secure justice. But also must be attended to is the notion that force is an ultima ratio, that everything needs to be tested carefully before this becomes necessary and it should never become normal. Now, the essential problem I see is that in the evolution of this new strategic doctrine, there seems to be a way in which force becomes a potential instrument to adjudicate human rights problems, and force becomes an incorporated part of nonproliferation policy. Now, I don't want to overemphasize here. Obviously, Human rights policy has always acknowledged that human rights violations could reach a certain standard, for example, like genocide, where force would be required. But I submit that the overriding conception of human rights policy was that it was about the political order, the responsibility of states to use a multiplicity of tools to try to rectify human rights policy. And force was not normally understood as a ready instrument of human rights policy. Secondly, regarding nonproliferation, 
Again, it seems to me that while this is about a security issue, and indeed is a highly complex question of how you balance the security of the international system with the possibility that sovereign states who hold the right to use force might turn to the building of weapons of mass destruction. So it is an issue of war and peace. Nonproliferation policy, I submit, until the most recent period, has been understood as a diplomatic policy. If force is now going to be regularly introduced into the question of what one does about the threat of weapons of mass destruction, the ancient ethical questions of who decides when the threat has risen to an appropriate level, how we decide that question, by what standards, and what is a proportionate response to the threat, seems to me not to be something to be yielded to a unipolar conception of the world, normatively or empirically. Finally, intervention. The debates of the 1990s, for many of us, was how, were how you expanded the reasons to intervene in order to prevent creeping chaos. But there always was a problematical open end to the question. That is to say that if you said it should not just be genocide, it also should be ethnic cleansing that justified force or failed states that justified force, then the question of how far you go down that road was precisely the open-ended question. And did weapons of mass destruction, under an argument that they threaten systemic safety, fit into the world of justifiable intervention? We have now used that argument for Iraq. It does seem to me that it is necessary to remember the original function of the non-intervention principle. It was to restrain major states from having a casus belli that was not aggression, a different casus belli that was not aggression. And the non-intervention principle sought to distinguish internal behavior from external behavior. The soft underbelly of that was the human rights argument. But the value of it was that it established high standards for resorting to force. The question of whether intervention expanded on humanitarian military intervention grounds should also be expanded to include, once again, intervention to deal with the threat or the development of weapons of mass destruction takes us back to the questions I've just raised. In conclusion on these questions, we are clearly in need of a coherent theory of force, human rights, nonproliferation, and intervention. And we will have to draw on those four broad areas of normative discourse to do that. In conclusion, whence we may go, I will simply identify problems and not explain them. In addition to the unfinished arguments that I have just listed, there are other arguments that are ahead of us. First of all, religion and world politics. The movement from the realist triumph to the present day has meant that ethics is now securely included in both the academy, the diplomatic arena, and the strategic arena in discussions of politics and strategy. It belongs there. It is treated as if it belongs. And while it may not always win the argument, it is not absent. There is not the same degree of integration of discussion of religion and world politics, but as I indicated earlier, 
I think that is an indeed a necessary task. One is not here into promoting religion. One is simply trying to address a phenomenon that has deep, powerful, potential public impact on the role of states, nations, and in the lives of individuals. How do we understand that? How do we think about it in analytical terms? How is, does it stand as part of the normal equation of how you think about world politics? That task is still ahead of us. The integration of politics and ethics is way ahead of where politics and religion on, in the international arena is. Secondly, the relationship of the international system and the state, particularly this state, the kinds of questions of world order that raise questions about the role of international institutions, state power, and very importantly, non-governmental organizations, whether one is talking about human rights or intervention or international development. Finally, policy and the public. Again, John Courtney Murray once said, policy is the meeting place of the world of power and the world of morality, in which there takes place the encounter and reconciliation of the duty of success that rests upon the statesman and the duty of justice that rests upon the civilized nation that he serves. That means that while power is discussed professionally in defined circles of governance, the use of power in moral terms is the business of every citizen of a democracy. It is for that reason that this kind of enterprise in which you are involved is preeminently necessary and of great worth. Thank you very much. You can tell that Father Hare is not an academic. He stayed exactly to time. <laughs> Many of you are coming back to school, the alumni in the audience uh, the, are, are by the people uh, guests, and it, this must have reminded you of your classroom discussions where just as you thought you had it all wrapped up, there was a whole new set of questions uh, to be answered. Uh, but I know a few people better who can take an enormously complex subject acknowledge its complexity and still help us guide our way through. We don't have answers, but we have a much better handle on how to seek them. I have missed your friendship and your voice. It is wonderful to invite you back to Princeton, and there will be many more invitations. Thank you. We will see you back here at 4 o'clock for the closing conversation. In the meantime, there are two panels, one to continue the moral debate and the other on how other parts of the world see the United States. See you back at 4. <laughs>